You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Leo Katz, who is a professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania, also the author of numerous articles and books, including a bunch of classics, and this one called Ill-Gotten Gains, Evasion, Blackmail, Fraud, and Kindred Puzzles of the Law. This one here, Bad Acts and Guilty Minds, Conundrums of the Criminal Law. And of course, this one, Why the Law is So Perverse. And I would have to say that for someone reading these three books, if they had to guess what area of law you specialize in, I think they would be hard-pressed, right? Is he a criminal law guy? Is he a property law guy? Like, there's so many different areas of law that you explore. I think you sort of have this restless curiosity about the law. And I found in this book, Why the Law is So Perverse, your curiosity ranges into the domains of political science and decision theory. And I think that the main thrust of this book is that Some of the things that we find so puzzling in the law and annoying about the law are inevitable, right? And unavoidable because at the end of the day, the law is trying to fulfill a number of objectives, social objectives, which are at many levels irreconcilable, or there's no aggregation function that we can devise, which will allow us to satisfy all of the different goals. And you lean heavily on the work of different voting theorists, Condorcet and Borda from back in the day, and more recently, Ken Arrow and, and Amartya Sen. And I found this connection to be really compelling. And then towards the end of the book, you get into individuals and individual decision-making. So when Shakespeare said, let's kill all the lawyers, right? I mean, like actors and lawyers, they're a little suspicious because they seem to be engaging in pursuit of loopholes and doing things that may contravene the public welfare. But I think you're saying that, look, this is just part of being a lawyer, right? This is something that you have to do. So I don't know where to start. Maybe we can just start off by saying, like, how did you first make the connection between choice theory and decision theory and these conundrums that you had been articulating? What got me into it was a relatively self-contained, smaller scale puzzle in the law was of longstanding and for which there had been multiple explanations. And the fact that there were multiple explanations tells you that none of them was all that persuasive. And that was the puzzle of blackmail. There seemed to be pretty much universal agreement that blackmail is a terrible thing. And let's just be clear what we mean by blackmail, or rather what the paradoxical aspect of blackmail is. The classic cases where somebody threatens to disclose some embarrassing secret about you which he would be free to disclose if he just wanted to embarrass you. But instead of doing that, he asks you for some money in return for not disclosing it. And that's a crime, not just a wrong, not just a tort, but it's actually criminalized and criminalized in a very serious way. It's not a trivial crime, nor is it one of those crimes, you know, adultery used to be a crime too, but we got away from that. And there was always unease about whether it belonged in the criminal category. But blackmailers never really been much unease in the sense that everybody agreed it's obviously a crime. The puzzle about it is that, well, you're threatening to do something which you're perfectly entitled to do, and that's kind of how the ordinary bargains work. You're always threatening something. The mere fact that you're threatening isn't the problem. You're threatening not to sell that car that somebody really wants. I'll stop buying your product unless you cut your prices, right? 
Well, absolutely. And as long as what you're threatening is something you're, in fact, entitled to do, we've got a regular bargain. We don't call that coercion. We view it as illegitimate, in ordinary context, coercive, if you're threatening to do something you're not entitled to do. In the case of a robbery, I'll, I'll stab you if you don't give me your money. Or do whatever. It could be something less serious, but in any event, something I'm not entitled to do. And with blackmail, it's altogether different. So initially, there was just this question about blackmail, and the literature that I found on it described, well, the accounts for it all kind of focused on the fact that the classic case of blackmail involved the disclosure of information was being threatened. And so most of the explanations focused on there's something special about information, and that needs to be policed more extensively. Then as I thought about it, it looked as though this sort of problem arose in many contexts and didn't particularly involve information. Something like, I'm going to persuade your son to do what he's always had an inclination to do, uh, join the army or buy a motorcycle or do something else he wants to do, but you don't particularly want him to do. But, you know, if I can be dissuaded for some tangible benefit, that reeks of blackmail. I'm not threatening to disclose anything. I'm just threatening to do something that will displease you, but that I'm perfectly entitled to do. And you can push that further. And you find all sorts of contexts in which somebody makes a threat that, well, when it's packaged with a request for a benefit, it seems troublesome, but it doesn't have anything to do with information. If, for instance, the initiator of the transaction is the purchaser of the silence, then it's not blackmail, right? So if I'm the one that says, hey, you know what, that person, I see that they're about to disclose something and I want to pay them not to do so, that's fine, right? Because it's not coming as a result of some threat. Yeah. So then there was this further aspect. At first glance, it looked like a secondary aspect of blackmail, which is, it's in fact, not only is blackmail itself hard to explain why we prohibit it, but there are so many close cousins of it, like the situation you described, that are routine and that are not criminalized. So for instance, this business about, I know somebody's about to disclose something, so I, the potential victim of blackmail, Though I'm not about to be blackmailed, take the initiative and then say, well, if you don't publish it, I'll pay you. And that's probably okay, this kind of bribery. Bribery, it's not even, bribery suggests that there's something illicit about it, but there wouldn't be. And then there are other ways in which something like blackmail happens all the time, akin to this, which is fairly common. I mean, if somebody wants to accomplish blackmail these days, he will usually be not be so crude as to make the threat the way I described it. You'll have a lawyer disclose that they're about to file a lawsuit in some matter or other. And in the course of this lawsuit, there'll be discovery and certain things will have to be alleged and come out. They just want to let you know we can settle this lawsuit if you want to. Divorce case, all sorts of garbage comes to the surface, right? Right. And that's okay for the most part. I mean, Michael Avenatti discovered that even there you've got to be careful or it may not work. But for the most part, this sort of quasi-blackmail in the context of a settlement negotiation works. And then the case that really drove this point home to me about the oddity of that you could commit blackmail in all sorts of ways, just not the most direct way, was a hypothetical that someone had suggested, which at first glance seemed kind of specialized, but then seemed to, in fact, have many counterparts. Take the following kind of situation. It's not quite the example he offered, but this is the way I illustrated it to myself. So I imagined two actresses, each of which frequently found themselves competing for the same part. And one of them tended to beat out the other. I call them Mildred and Abigail in the 
ill-gotten gains book. Millard girl grows increasingly jealous of Abigail, who beats her out, narrowly beats her out for many parts that they seem kind of equally suited for. So she tries to think of a way of keeping Abigail away from the audition. And at first glance, what occurs to her is straight-out blackmail. She knows some embarrassing facts about affairs that Abigail has been having, so she thinks about telling Abigail, stay away from the audition, or I'll tell your husband about this. And that would be a crime. Then an alternative avenue occurs to her by which she can avoid blackmail. She sends a letter to Abigail's address, due to arrive around the time of the audition. She then tells Abigail that there's this letter there, can do about it what she wants, and Abigail now is pinned at home trying to divert this letter communicating the very embarrassing information that ordinarily the threat of disclosure of which would amount to blackmail. And it's pretty clear that, well, it probably wouldn't amount to blackmail. So somehow this example in particular caught my attention. We actually find counterparts to this often occurring in the labor context. A factory owner is not entitled to say, if you go on strike or if you make demands for extra compensation, I'm just going to close the plant. But he could let them know that the way things are, or maybe the way he's arranged things, the factory will inevitably be driven to bankruptcy if they escalate their demands. Now he's issued a warning. It's not a threat. And by converting the threat into a warning, essentially by putting everything in place in advance so that it will happen, what, whatever you subsequently do, this simple conversion of a threat into a warning has allowed you to escape punishment. Initially, I thought that this too was just a peculiarity of blackmail this possibility of playing these kinds of games. And then I started to realize that it was actually emblematic of something much more widespread in the law, which blackmail perhaps helped to alert one to. But once you started looking for it, it really occurred elsewhere. And so this then widened my perspective to the question of circumvention, restructuring, devious stratagems by which you get to accomplish what ostensibly is prohibited by the law. But if you're just clever enough about it, or rather consult a knowledgeable lawyer, you get to accomplish the same thing. So from blackmail, they grew this larger puzzle. How do you account for this phenomenon that, well, once you ask lawyers about it, I started asking lawyers about this example. I started asking them about other examples of circumvention and what they thought about it. And the most striking thing about it was both the level of disagreement and the level of confidence with which lawyers reacted to my questions about these cases. When I say these cases, and what do I mean by circumvention beyond blackmail? That's about form versus substance, right? Exactly. Because an economist would look at these things and say, well, they don't see a whole lot of difference between some of these cases. They don't see any kind of clear bright lines in terms of the, the consequences. But, you know, economists or consequentialists who have a faith in the fundamental efficiency of the law they're going to try and dig deep into these and try and find some kind of long-term incentive, right? So for instance, whenever we see two consenting adults enter into some agreement, we presume it's mutually beneficial. We presume it's win-win. We presume it's Pareto improving. And so therefore we would expect the law to support it. But then when we see cases of, you know, I threatened to burn down your house and you pay me, I don't burn down your house. That sounds mutually beneficial, but an economist would say, Oh, yeah, but that encourages people to make investments in behavior and technologies which are not wealth 
creating. And so they would have a story around that. But the examples that you're referring to, the consequentialist argument, you'd have to go through some very strange mental acrobatics to align the consequentialist story with some of the differences that you recognize, right? Yeah, it might be illuminating to describe the experience I had when I took some of these examples. I said some of these, let me just amplify a little so we have a clear picture of what we're talking about beyond blackmail. So when I talk about lawyerly stratagems or form versus substance or circumvention, I'm talking about the following kind of case. This is an example suggested to me actually by Elizabeth Warren, the current senator who was then a bankruptcy scholar at the University of Pennsylvania. I took my bankruptcy class with her. That was my first law class. That was an adventure. Awesome. Right here at Penn. Yeah, yeah. Well, she told me about the following strategy that often is used on the verge of bankruptcy, personal bankruptcy. You've got debts that outstrip your assets, though your assets might still be significant. You have $10 million, but your debts are $50 million. Declaring personal bankruptcy means you, you give up everything you own, the $10 million in exchange for a clean slate and being relieved of the $50 million debts, but you really would like to keep those $10 million. Well, there's the special category of exempt assets that the law quite sensibly doesn't require you to sacrifice. The idea there is, I mean, personal bankruptcy means in exchange for getting a fresh start, you give up everything you own. Makes good sense, but obviously we wouldn't want to extend it literally to the shirt on your back. You don't have to give the shirt on your back or the equivalents of the shirt off your back. The bed you sleep in, maybe your abode, maybe a pension you have, the basic prerequisites of living, you're entitled to retain those. Those are usually described in qualitative terms. They're particular types of items that are deemed personal and you don't need to give those up. And so the natural strategy on the, or a strategy to be contemplated on the verge of personal bankruptcy is take what you've got, convert it into exempt assets, and then say you can take everything else, which may be very little or nothing at all. She'd been at a recent conference of bankruptcy law judges where they were asked what they thought about this strategy called exemption planning. And about half of them thought outrageous, a fraud in the law not to be permitted. These transactions have to be unwound and this belongs to the creditors. And half of them thought it would be malpractice for a lawyer not to advise his client that this is what he had to do. And that turned out to be typical of the reaction that lawyers tend to have to most of these circumvention strategies. Here's another one that I rather like, both because of its potency and its simplicity. Someone is visiting the United States. He has a short tourist visa, but he would like to stay. He would like to become an immigrant. Of course, he's not entitled to just become an immigrant because he wants to. But there are these special exceptions for people, for instance, who are asking for political asylum. Well, he consults a lawyer. He says, I'd like to stay. Is there anything you can do for me? And the lawyer says, well, you don't seem to fall into any of the existing categories for exceptions, but there's this political asylum category. Man says, well, not a dissident. I've never had any trouble with my, albeit quite tyrannical government back home. The lawyer says, well, not so far. The man makes some sort of pronouncement that really makes a persona non grata back home. If he went back home now, he'd be jailed or worse. And now he says, and I stay because otherwise I'll be killed. That strategy is used, this sort of sometimes called a bootstrapping strategy. And of course, the area of law that is most notorious for this, and we haven't mentioned so far, is tax law. Tax lawyers might balk at this, but some tax scholars have said, and that strikes me as plausible, that basically all that tax lawyers do or tax accountants do is restructure a transaction that has one form before, 
incurring a lot of tax liability into a form where that tax liability is greatly reduced. Those are the sorts of transactions in which this question about circumvention comes up. I think about corporate law as I know that area the best. And there, the of judgment proofing yourself is one that seems to be all about form and less about substance. So for instance, if you're trying to prevent piercing of the veil, or if you're trying to prevent consolidation, you do these steps, you make sure that you record the moments of your board of directors and, and you make sure you don't mix all of the accounts. But whenever the courts talk about why it's okay to violate that, they say, well, if this was done purely for the intent of getting around the idea of liability, then it's not okay. But then the way they determine your intent is by looking at the actual form of the steps that you took. It's a little bit disturbing to economists, but it's sort of par for the course for lawyers. You're absolutely right. Proofing yourself, I mean, protecting your assets from potential liability creditors, of course, yes, one of the primary examples of this sort of maneuver. And the simplest illustration of it works much like incorporation, but even simpler to understand. An employer wants to avoid tort liability for the actions of his employees. Ordinarily, he's liable for the actions of his employees, but you can, if it's one thing if they're employees, but suppose they're independent contractors. Can't really hold someone liable for what an independent contractor does. Otherwise, anytime you purchase, anytime you do anything, have anyone do anything for you, you'd be liable for what he does if he does something wrong. So you can't have that. But it's pretty easy often to restructure a relationship so that the person is not your employee, but your independent contractor. And that way you've avoided liability, even though you've basically kept everything the same. One to get back to sort of a little sociological observation I made when I started asking my colleagues about these cases and what they thought about them, because there was a pattern to their reaction. There was one group that thought, yeah, it's true. These are maybe superficial differences, but they're differences. They make all the difference in the world. That's the way the law works. That's the way it ought to work. The people who tended to take this view tended to work either in the procedural area, civil procedure, criminal procedure, or in areas of law like criminal law that had sort of a heavily moral tinge to them. Then there were the people on the other side, the lawyer economists, and to them, their initial reaction was, I mean, subsequently they qualified it a bit just the way you did. Their initial reaction was absurd, just demonstrates how silly the law is and how in need of economists the lawyers are to straighten out this silliness, totally indefensible. Then sometimes they backed up a little and started to tell sort of more convoluted stories about administrative ease and incentives and so forth that maybe might account for these oddities and make sense of them. And then there was a category that was in between that was kind of schizophrenic. Those were the people who worked in tax law, who often come from the economics area, but who at the same time, of course, they're in the business of teaching these stratagems. Their reaction was hardest to make sense of, or rather they were the ones who worked hardest at trying to come up with some background story of something from my point of view, a little bit of an epicycle to justify what from an economist, what their economist part of the mind suggested didn't make any sense. And it was often striking that the very same cases they had the most fervent, usually fervent opinions about, but on opposite sides of the line. My favorite example of this was I gave them the following kind of case that frequently arises, both arises in the corporate and the individual context. I imagine this man who ran a little business and he was making a gift to his son every year of some small sum of money. 
And he has to pay income tax on all of his income and the fact that he gives some of it away to his son. But the fact that he gives, let's say, $10,000 away to his son every year doesn't mean that he doesn't have to pay taxes on that $10,000, though he would prefer if his son paid the taxes because his son is in a lower tax bracket, but that's not how it works. Now, suppose he restructured this transaction a little. One year, he gives his son $100,000, borrows this $100,000 back, and then pays interest of $10,000 on that same $100,000. So he were back to the starting gate, except now the $10,000 has been kind of relabeled. It's interest that he pays on a loan that he got from his son. And now it's a different story. The son has to pay income tax on the $10,000 at a much lower rate than the father did, and the father can deduct it. Well, let's just say leaseback transactions in the corporate context basically work like that. Seems like pure magic, but it has that effect. And some people told me, well, of course, it's preposterous to allow this. And others say, yeah, 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 how can you not? I mean, and some people, of course, try to deal with this by applying the tests that you suggested. Well, let's just focus on why they did it. Did they have a real reason, economic reason, or was this driven by legal motivations, by legal strategy? And if that's the intent, well, then that's how we ought to distinguish. It's an uneconomical transaction if the intent was simply to dodge the law. If you've got a real reason, that's a different story. That turns out not to be a very helpful test because there are lots of times you do things because of the law and it would be strange to say it's objectionable. You avoid breaking the law because there's criminal liability. We don't say, well, now it's a law-driven transaction and therefore you are to be treated like a criminal because but for the law, you would have done it. So that test doesn't work terribly well, which then leaves on with the question, so what should one do about this business that's often called loophole exploitation of the law? I mean, in this book, you talk about how loopholes are inevitable and there's no way around the creation of loopholes, but you highlight a couple other things that are interesting. So for instance, this idea of discontinuities and how the law has all of these discontinuities where you're, you're either liable or not liable, you're either guilty or not guilty, you're doing something that's either legal or illegal, whereas the underlying reality is somewhere in the middle, but we impose a discontinuity on top of a, a continuity. That's a puzzle. And I think you tie all of these puzzles together with this underlying framework. And maybe I'll call it the cat's impossibility theorem. Are we allowed to do that? Are we allowed to say that? You don't say it. But I think you make this point that there's just no way that we can ultimately satisfy all of the different objectives that we have for a legal system. Now, others have made this point, not quite in the same way that you do. So how is this, your approach, different from, say, the approach that we've all encountered related to the, say, the trolley problem, right? I mean, we've got deontological intuitions, we've got utilitarian intuitions, and they're in conflict, and there's nothing we can do about it. You're making a much more ambitious claim. Could you kind of highlight how you arrived at this claim and how it relates to this idea of voting? Yeah, no one would quarrel with the proposition. I think this would be sort of accepted as conventional wisdom that... There are all sorts of trade-offs that one might have to make in passing a law and that competing objectives can't always be perfectly attained and finding disturbing aspects in the law as a result of that wouldn't particularly disturb economists and wouldn't particularly disturb consequentialists. I mean, an economist would say, oh, well, what we really need to do is come up with some kind of ultimate aggregation function, right? Some kind of utility function which incorporates the different 
objectives into some meta objective function that tells us when we ought to pursue the one and when we want to pursue the other. And I think you're saying that's fundamentally impossible. Yeah. I think what I was just describing is sort of both the common sense and the consequentialist and the economist's views of dilemmas. We're going to do the best we can. We're going to weigh different desiderata against each other and decide which are most important among them to us. And that's how we're going to design our law. And if that were the case, if the law looked like that, the trolley problem wouldn't particularly be a problem because in most such situations, the trolley problem being this case of this trolley that hits down a track. And if we just let it go, it's going to run over five people. But if we divert it to the side, it's going to kill one person, then we will have saved the five. And then there are many other situations of a more controversial nature where we can save many at the cost of killing one. And from the consequentialist point of view, putting to the side sort of certain systemic difficulties, if this becomes known, they would say everything else being equal, that's what we ought to do. It's a dilemma in the sense that it's unfortunate that someone has to die, but it's not really a dilemma for decision-making in that it's kind of clear what makes sense. Now, what's so striking about the law is that it tends not to do that. In many cases, it forbids this sort of trade-off. And then, of course, the law has many other features that turn out to be of a piece with deontology, including this business about being able to circumvent a law by being clever about it. That is actually kind of an aspect of deontological morality because deontological morality emphasizes means over ends. And once you emphasize means over ends, well, that basically the flip side of that is you can play games by changing the means and getting to the same end, which is why the consequentialist tends to be averse to it unless you can tell a very unusual story about why there should in this particular context be a focus on means because of the ultimate effect on ends. Now, the way voting came into this is, well, the presupposition here of the economist in all of this is that the sensible way to design the law is to decide what we want. Could be multiple objectives, but nonetheless, objectives that can be weighed against each other and we decide which is more important under which circumstances. And we try to do the best we can to maximize whatever objective we've identified, often conveniently designated as efficiency or welfare and so forth. Maybe welfare incorporating all sorts of non-pecuniary or even unusual considerations, but in any event, it's ultimately trying to get the most of what we want. So there's the whole idea of expressive utility, right? The law is sort of making certain representations about what's important to society and so forth. That's how you would integrate some of the features, right? Right. One of the things that, in fact, I didn't see this so clearly yet, or at all clearly, only had a partial glimpse of it when I was working on why the law is so perverse. And this is really an outcome of subsequent work I did with Alvaro Sandroni, who had been working on related problems in the domain of psychology, trying to explain non-consequentialist decision-making in the psychological realm, which often is described as irrational. And he tried to explain why actually it might not be irrational at all, or at least to model it in a satisfactory way. And the models that he had come up with turned out to be very helpful in understanding the law. The salient feature of the models he had devised was that decision-making could not be described as maximization. It involved perfectly sensible, rational decision-making that nonetheless could not be described by a utility function. And as soon as we have decision-making that cannot be described by a utility function, 
all sorts of peculiarities will manifest themselves, both in the psychological realm and in its counterpart in the legal realm. So Arrows and Possibility Theorem, in short, basically says that even if you have a bunch of individuals who are conformed to what an economist would call rational, when you try and put them together and construct an aggregate preference function, you can frequently result in what we might consider irrational preference orderings, right? That's the idea. And so this idea is that, well, an individual is really kind of like a committee of different objectives and preferences and criteria. And so each of those individual criteria that the individual is concerned with may have a rationality about them, but when they try to put them all together and put them into practice, there's going to be what looks like irrational preference ordering, right? Right. Now, the economist's reaction to that in part is, well, that may be true of collectivities, but the fact is a sensible person shouldn't act like a collectivity. If he's got a bunch of different rankings and he needs of under different criteria and he needs to aggregate them, he should basically use a sort of consequentialist calculus. That's the sensible way to proceed because otherwise all sorts of absurdities will result. The most extreme absurdity being that he's going to be very intransitive and so he'll become a money pump. He'll choose A over B and B over C, but also C over A. And so he's subject to exploitation. So when you're an individual making decisions, and indeed, even if as a group, you ought to try to figure out a system that does create a utility function. So then the question is, what a law look like that in fact maximized the utility function in the way that economists and people modeling law and economics have insisted. and why exactly is it that our law, if it doesn't look like that, doesn't look like that? And that, with the help of Alvaro Sandroni's models, I think we were able to show relatively clearly. So if one wanted a law that could be represented as maximizing something, it would necessarily have to have the following look. All possible options that a citizen, someone might have to choose between, would have to be susceptible to being ranked in terms of desirability according to whatever criteria we decide are relevant, they can be ranked. The citizen then faces a subset of those and he shall choose the one that's most desirable. Of course, there can be lots of ties. So then he's got discretion among equally desirable ones, but that's the limit of his discretion. Now, very quickly, one sees when one looks at particular legal doctrines that they don't at all conform to this. And what's more, they don't conform to this for reasons that well, let me give you an example of how they don't conform to it, and then you'll see why it's hard to say, well, let's just change them. Obviously, the law is irrational. I take something really relatively simple, like the defense of duress in criminal law. So the defense of duress provides that if you're faced with a sufficiently dire threat, like being tortured, unless you commit a crime or help somebody commit a crime, well, you've got an excuse. Somebody says, help me in this bank robbery. You've got this unique skill breaking into safes, you try to refuse, he threatens you with great physical harm or with great physical pain. If you then yield, understandably, you, you're excused. Now, you don't get the duress defense lightly. For certain things, you won't get it. So if he threatens to hurt your puppy or destroy a work of art you've spent a lot of time on or a manuscript you've completed, I mean, that may be very important to you, but you won't get the duress defense if you say, I had to do it because otherwise this would have happened. Now, the clincher here is, suppose you face the choice at some point between harm to your puppy or your work of art or your manuscript 
or suffering great pain. Well, you're entirely free to decide which of those two you want to do, and it wouldn't be irrational. I mean, people all the time, of course, decide to incur great risks and pain and so forth in order to protect these kinds of assets. And it makes all of these decisions on the part of the law make sense, that you get the duress defense for one, for a serious threat, that you don't get the duress defense for a less serious threat, and that it should be up to you how to, you know, the Pareto optimal decision is for you to decide between two alternatives if you're the only affected party. But when you put these things together, you've got a set of alternatives that can't be represented by a utility function because your choice among these is actually going to be intransitive. It's going to be cyclical. You might end up choosing pain over harm to your puppy. You will end up choosing committing the bank robbery over suffering the pain. But as between the bank robbery and harm to your puppy, you respect moral constraints, legal constraints, and you therefore accept harm to your puppy over committing the bank robbery. Well, if law could be represented by a maximizing function, that wouldn't happen. These three alternatives would be ranked. You would be required to choose the topmost. You'd never end up acting intransitively. And the duress defense isn't unique. Now, what's so striking here about the duress defense is it's quite evident that there's no irrationality on the part of the law. It's not that people haven't fully reflected on what they're doing and how their choices hang together. It's just that all three of these moral commitments seem quite strong. One could try to restore linearity or possibility of the linear non-transitive ranking by giving up one of those, except it's very hard to give up one of those. So it seems what the law, in fact, has done is give up untransitivity. So I said, you know, we're going to kind of have our cake and eat it by, yeah, we're going to be intransitive and it's not going to be the end of the world. And of course, it has not been the end of the world. Given the that duress is not a unique situation and that lots of doctrines work like this, the way the law deals with dilemmas is not the way the economist or the consequentialist initially thinks is the sensible way, but instead by accepting intransitivity. And dealing with dilemmas by accepting intransitivity means we're kind of in a different world than that of ordinary consequentialist rationality. We're not in a world of irrationality, but we're in a world that actually pretty much tracks deontological morality. So it's not as though deontological morality often looks like, you know, just sort of we're caving into our intuitions and that's kind of all we can say in behalf of it. But once you look at these examples of it, it's not quite just a matter of caving into our intuitions or rather we've decided that transitivity is less important than our commitment to these other things. Not a silly judgment, but once you give up on transitivity, any system of rules that gives up on transitivity is going to have a mighty peculiar look to it. Peculiar look that happens to more or less coincide with the peculiarities of the law. Well, one example, you talk about, say, tradable emission rights, right? So, you know, economists, they can't figure out why there is resistance to things which appear to be so obviously beneficial, right? Like we want to reduce pollution and we want to do it at the lowest cost possible. And we've got a technology which enables it and it's relatively easy to administer. We've kind of figured it out. We know the technology and we can monitor and all the normal excuses for not doing it, like information costs and transaction costs. We kind of figured that out, but there's resistance to this because it seems to violate some other objectives that we have. And so it's essentially saying, well, we don't like pollution, but we're willing to put up with it, even though putting up with it, we're overriding the mutually beneficial transactions that could occur where no one seems to be harmed in any other way than our 
moral preferences are violated in some way. Right. This is probably the area where economists are most puzzled and offended. The wide range, and it's not just a small set, of transactions that the law prohibits where none of the obvious or sensible economic explanations make sense. Both parties want it. No one else is hurt by it. They know what they're doing. So it's not a case of incompetence or something more elusive, unequal bargaining power. It's a win-win transaction with no one out there who could possibly object except maybe on the grounds that they feel offended. And that's a peculiar ground to economists, quite sensibly, I think. In emission rights, it, it now looks as though the debate at least has been sort of settled in favor of the Pareto principle and allowing at least some such trading, but selling of organs, pretty much still off limits, or in contract law, issue arises whether you can contract for specific performance. You know, there used to be this perfectly permissible transaction in colonial America called indentured servitude, which people now associate with slavery and the like. It was nothing of the sort. It was that when an employer wanted to bring over someone from the old country and they didn't have the money to pay for passage. So the family that hired them would pay for passage and they would stay on as servants for a certain amount of time. Nothing problematic about that. The only problem was what to do if they ran away. Ordinary contract remedies don't do much under these circumstances. Ordinary contract remedies are they have to pay damages, but since they don't have assets, what are you going to do? So the only way this would work is if you could ask the courts to force them to return to their previous employment called specific enforcement of a contract. And you know, the law at some point took the position, well, we don't do that. We don't force people to do something. We force them to pay, but we'll never force them to do something. In many contexts, that's not particularly beneficial to the two parties who want this kind of commitment and third parties aren't hurt. And yet the law prohibits it. And there's no death of this. And economists, when they've written on it, sort of say, well, there are these taboo transactions. It's sort of a superstition that seems to be associated with them. And it makes no sense. Ideally, we would abandon it. Maybe we have to work around it. But really, there's no good justification for it. The idea of consent is something that you can, in some cases, you can withdraw your consent up to some point, right? And so you cannot commit yourself because regardless of how explicit your consent is, you can kind of revoke it at any moment, right? Right. So, I mean, you've got different kinds of consent problems. One is you can't trade it at all. And then others, you just can't give it in advance. It has to be contemporaneous consent. But if it has to be contemporaneous consent, I mean, that often undoes the point of the bargain, as in the case of these contracts for performance of a service. Now, the example I particularly like of a forbidden transaction, because I found it's the transaction most helpful in getting economists to hesitate and to wonder, is a somewhat esoteric one. Esoteric only because no one would contemplate it. Although, as far as I can tell, no one could tell me why they wouldn't. And it's the consensual transaction with which I opened the book. And that's the case of voluntary torture. That is, suppose we could make our penal system a lot more efficient without making it obviously more inhumane, at least by the consequentialist slides. You know, torture is a lot cheaper as a means of punishment than jailing people, of course. Terrible thing, so we're not going to impose that on anyone. But we're going to give them the option. If they want to abbreviate their sentence, we'll substitute only if they want to. Under conditions where it's quite clear that they're really, it's their choice and they can back out any time. But if they volunteer for some severe torture, 
which we'll make only mildly less attractive than serving the sentence so that we preserve as much deterrence as we pretty much had before, they can opt for this. To them, it'll be a little like medical treatment, a painful medical treatment that relieves them of some long-term disability in, in return for this very short-term discomfort. Well, I mean, haven't there been conversations about chemical castration as an alternative to lengthy jail terms for sex offenders? Absolutely. And even this relatively mild thing, which of course is there, it's not pain. There are other disabilities being substituted and it's much easier to in intuitively accept. Even that by and large has been very controversial. But my more extreme suggestion, I think it's off the table for everyone. I certainly wouldn't particularly embrace it. But it's a bit of a mystery, kind of like blackmail, because none of the standard explanations for why we would prohibit a consensual transaction seem to apply. It's not that the parties don't know what they're doing. It's not that third parties are adversely affected. It might look at first glance as though it's coercive, but it's not particularly coercive because we're entitled to keep them in jail. We only give this to them as an option. And yet we object to it. Now, it turns out that in a regime that is non-maximizing, one of the more hidden features of it, or at least not immediately apparent features of it, is it's also going to end up at times violating the Pareto principle. It's also at times going to either make plausible or indeed at other times make unavoidable, prohibiting certain consensual transactions. So yes, one of the further oddities, one of the further perversities that results once you accept that there's intransitivity in the law, once you accept that it can't be represented by a maximizing function, you end up with plausible situations in which a transaction that the two parties want and no one else objects to, nonetheless ends up being prohibited. When you're talking about loopholes, you talk about this mismatch theory, which I, I found very, it's very appealing, particularly if you have a background in statistics, right? Because it's kind of like you talk about these type one errors, type two errors, and it's inevitable that if you try to be as maximally prohibitive, you're ultimately going to make some errors. And if you're minimally prohibitive, you're going to make some errors. And so just understanding those trade-offs helps you to figure out why there kind of has to be some wiggle room around the edges, right? Let me take a little bit of exception to that. Yeah, it's certainly true. Rules are always going to be imperfect. And so we get exactly what you describe as type one and type two errors, over-inclusiveness, under-inclusiveness. And for a long time, people have thought, and in particular, consequentialists and economists, that that's really what's going on when lawyers engage in these strategies that we talked about early on. A loophole is basically a mismatch. And that story says that, oh, once we've identified, oh, we, we just slightly adjust the rule and then we learn some new stuff and then we just kind of try and come up with a rule that is not overfit, not underfit, but we're just going to keep iteratively refining the rule so as to minimize the error rate across the board. That would be the story of the mismatch, right? Right. Maybe sometimes we can't do it because it's just too hard to administer. And it would explain why we think so badly of the lawyer who exploits this loophole, because we're helpless. He really knows what the real rule ought to be. And he takes advantage of the fact that we can't express it well enough or administer it punctiliously enough. That seemed initially self-evidently right. How could one possibly quarrel with that? And certainly it sometimes applies. What made me have second thoughts about it is that there are, in fact, lots of domains that resemble the law and in which these sorts of maneuvers take place that look like exploitation of a mismatch between rule and underlying idea, spirit, rationale, but the explanation doesn't really work. 
The realm that first drove this home to me was what religious people do, faithful people. Many religions have this prohibition against usury, which people take seriously, can't exact interest. None of them, however, find it particularly problematic to do things that get around this very readily. You make someone a partner, the investor, or a funny area that called the Mohatra contract, whereby you sell an asset to someone, the would-be lender, and you agree in advance that it's going to be sold back to you at a larger amount, namely the original amount plus the interest, and this works like collateral, basically. So it's really a disguised loan, and people don't feel particularly, religious people don't feel uneasy about doing that, and will often, in fact, consult their rabbi or their priest for advice on how they might do something that would violate a religious prohibition, but how could they get around that? Now, if you want to explain that with a mismatch theory, it doesn't quite, what are they saying? You know, God just didn't grab the usury provision right. We'll wait until he does, and until then, we're free to do this. Or even ordinary morality works like that. The simplest example to me, a rule of morality where we all exploit a loophole, a sort of loophole, which is the prohibition against lying. We feel bad about lying, so what do we do? Well, one option is to tell the truth. The other option is to just find a way to dissemble that doesn't involve an outright lie. Say something that's literally true, but highly misleading, or do the functional equivalent of dissembling, but not commit the outright lie. Now, again, the mismatch theory doesn't really explain that because it's our own morality. We feel better if we dissemble in this roundabout, indirect way than directly. So it's not the case that somebody misdrafted the rule there. Something else seems to be going on. And then the third, a third realm in which this occurs is in autocratic regimes. People often succeed with these strategies as well, even though you might think, well, the dictator doesn't particularly feel bound by how he expressed the rule. If, if he sees you doing something he didn't want you to do, he'll just intervene. And yet such regimes are notorious for people playing all all sorts of games. The final realm, and the one that I think is, is the most telltale, is playing these games in the parliamentary context. You can derail a law by being very clever about proposing an amendment. The amendment gets adopted. The amended law gets proposed. The amended law then is rejected. Now here, it's quite clear. Everybody understands what's going on there as a result of voting theory, and they understand it's not a case of mismatch. It's a feature of the way voting rules or defensible voting rules work that they're inevitably going to be susceptible to manipulation. And they're, you know, very ingenious and powerful theorems that show this in the voting context. And that then suggests that, well, maybe something analysis is going on in all these other realms, including the law, not the mismatch, but something analogous to what's going on in the voting context. And that brings us back to exactly what you were saying earlier. Maybe the law is doing something analogous to what is going on in the parliamentary context with voting, where we aggregate a variety of preferences, but not through a maximizing function, but in some other way. And essentially, it's that other way that we seek to describe for the law. And that other way respects a variety of desirable constraints, but the one constraint it no longer respects is having a utility function, having transitivity just as voting rules don't respect that. Well, this has implications for professional responsibility, right? So it, all lawyers are expected to adhere to professional responsibility. And one possible interpretation of professional responsibility is that you should 
pursue justice and adhere to the substance of justice and the intent of, of the law. And in that case, we would frown on activities that seem to subvert the substance, right? Where you're looking for some formulaic way around the substance, some kind of loophole and, and so forth. And this would mean lawyers are just sophists trying to win at all costs and they don't care about the broader consequences. But I think you're saying, well, hold on a second, right? It's not so easy to understand in any objective way what the substance really is because the law is essentially the product of multiple competing objectives. And that if you think of yourself more as a parliamentarian trying to achieve some goal, you might have to engage in strategies and activities that don't necessarily look so wholesome from afar. Is that a fair description of the implications for professional responsibility? You say a lawyer should think of themselves more as a parliamentarian. Absolutely. Yeah. They're really honing in a little on that parliamentarian example because it makes it clear why it's so hard to object to what the seemingly sophistical lawyer does. So let's suppose, you know, there's a reform proposal that's going to pass by a significant majority. And there are people who, you know, there's this minority that doesn't like that and wants to derail it. And the notoriously, one of the most successful ways of derailing this is by proposing something like a killer amendment. And that takes advantage of what's known in the voting context as the voting paradox. And the voting paradox says that sometimes when you've got multiple alternatives, the way voters' preferences line up is you could have a majority prefer alternative B to alternative A, and you could have a majority prefer alternative C to alternative B, but then not as you might expect that you might think that would then would mean that therefore a majority prefers C to A, no, it could be that A is preferred by a majority to C. So every alternative is one where there's a majority for it. Every alternative faces a potential competitor to which it would lose, as well as a potential competitor it might win against. So the person who proposes an amendment then is taking advantage of that. So this would be like putting in the first round of a runoff election for the person who is an extremist on the complete opposite side of what you prefer just so that you can play the end game and make sure that your candidate is running against somebody that nobody likes. Right. It doesn't even require insincerity on the strategist's part. He might even prefer the amendment, but he says, but what's even better is he's not going to get the amended outcome. He's going to just get the status quo, which is what he's really after. Now, on what grounds could one possibly object to it? I mean, could one say, well, the will of the people is being derailed? I mean, each of the three alternatives is an equally legitimate or an equally poor representative of the will of the people because there's no such thing. There's just a situation where every one of the three available alternatives has a majority for it relative to something and a majority against it relative to something else. So you make sure that you get the alternative that you happen to like best. It's no less a democratic outcome. The idea is that this is kind of how it is with legal strategizing as well. It looks at first glance devious because something is about to happen that looks like it's the democratic will, and you make sure that it doesn't happen. Looked at from that point of view, a terrible thing. Looked at more closely, it just seems if you believe in majority voting, then in this case, you can't really object to what's being done, and you can't say that the outcome is a terrible one. You don't have any grounds for objecting to the outcome as a terrible one. And if law has this intransitive structure, a non-maximizing structure, then you're basically always going to be in a position to make exactly the same defense for the outcome 
that you've engineered through your lawyering. So if intransitivity is inevitable, that also has these consequences that win-win Pareto improving transactions are inevitably going to be prohibited. There's going to be some that are prohibited. Loopholes are inevitable. There's no way to get around these loopholes. And then the third consequence, which you highlight is this idea that discontinuities are going to exist. And so this is one I think that economists are particularly disturbed by because whenever we look at the law, we think in terms of probabilities, like think about consent to sexual activity, right? It's either a rape or it's not a rape, meaning a person's either going to get 10 years or zero, right? Whereas when you look at the evidence, it's like, well, maybe it's kind of half consent or maybe the evidence is such that we think it's 50% likely that it was consent or non-consent. But we're not, we can't impose sort of a intermediate judgment, right? I mean, there are obviously, if you do a plea bargain, there's ways to essentially go somewhere in the middle, but the law itself you're either guilty or not guilty. You're either liable or not liable. And there are some exceptions, obviously, with contributory negligence and so forth. And I think in a lot of areas, we're seeing a movement more towards these gray solutions, but you can't get around it. Why is that the case? Yeah, on the face of it, it's really mystifying. And it's made more mystifying by the fact that there are plea bargains and settlements, which kind of seem to do what the law refuses to do, which is to split the difference. I think many law students, especially in their first year, are kind of driven nuts by this because they encounter these rules and the professor tortures them with all sorts of examples that, well, they're constructed so that is it a case of self-defense? Is it not? Well, and then at some point they throw up their hands. Well, you picked it because it's kind of self-defense, kind of not self-defense. And of course, that tends to be the the cases that get litigated and that we read about become litigated because... Well, there's lots of disagreement about them, about one thing there is agreement. There are hard cases that you could kind of argue both ways. And when people decide not to go to court, it's often because they realize there's a 50% chance it'll go one way, 50% chance it'll go the other way. So we'll settle on 50% of the damage award. But then you wonder, so why doesn't the law do that? I mean, it's an in-between case. So wouldn't the sensible outcome be an in-between verdict? Wouldn't that correspond to the justice of the situation? But it's not what the law does. Although an increasing number of people believe it should and have argued for that and contributory negligence does a little bit of that and they basically say we need to extend that and the law would look a lot better if we allowed these in-between solutions, not just as a product of settlement and plea bargaining, but we allowed the judge to split the difference. What's kind of remarkable about the history of the law is that notwithstanding intermittently legal scholars agitating for this, The law across the world pretty much resolutely goes the other way. One of my favorite examples of this is there's this question that arises in property law about what should be done if somebody steals something and then sells it to an innocent third party. And then the original owner comes along and wants it back from the, it's called the bona fide purchaser for value, the innocent party who acquired it. We're seeing this with artwork, right, quite a bit now with the Holocaust art. Exactly. So we've got two innocent parties. And you might think, and reformers have suggested, well, they're two innocent parties, so we'll let them kind of split the difference, which we might mean not by cutting the artwork in half, but having one person get the artwork and pay some money to the other innocent party. In fact, across the world, legal regimes basically do one of two things. They either let the original owner get his stuff back and the purchaser is out of luck or the purchaser gets to retain it and the original owner is out of luck. Just those two. The one regime that I 
read somewhere does something different is I think Mongolian cattle law. <laughs> they cut the cattle in half. <laughs> Even if it's a breeding cattle? I mean, presumably breeding cattle and food cattle are treated differently, no? It's in a footnote, I think, in an article by Saul Livermore. So I don't know. I haven't followed up. And I don't know whether that information is available or not. We of R&I have an account for that that more indirectly connects with this intransitivity phenomenon than these other phenomena. It's maybe not strictly required, but it's strongly suggested. Think about the following kind of situation. You have some job vacancies that you're trying to fill. Let's say they are a corporation. There are 10 positions you're trying to fill. You're a committee and you interview candidates. And in the end, you're unanimous that 85 of them should be rejected. And you're also unanimous that five of them are surefire hires. And then there are the 10 in between where there's disagreement. So what are you going to do? Well, it will be strongly tempting to do one of two things, to either hire just five and live with the deficiency, or maybe hire 15, if that's a possibility. The reason you're going to hesitate about doing anything in between is because that requires you to work out some plausible way of aggregating, of resolving the disagreement. And, you know, for voting theory, that there's really no persuasive way of doing that. Well, there are a bunch of acceptable ways, but they all lead in different directions. We're not really in a position to sort of line up the different alternative possibilities in terms of desirability because we've got no good formula for aggregating these disagreements. Well, something similar will often arise in deciding a legal case. There will be clear-cut alternatives to which something could be assimilated, but all the in-between cases can't really be arranged in the kind of linear order that would be required if one wanted one of these split-the-difference regimes. And so judges end up doing something analogous to what the corporation here would be doing. So you can see how in this case, the social choice paradigm is suggestive, even though it doesn't necessarily compel what the law does. This is the Chichilinsky theorem, right? It's related to that, yes. So then the last point, I think you were talking about life, right? And how we, someone's either alive or dead, and we don't think in terms of degrees. And I think the recent coronavirus crisis has highlighted how economists sometimes think a little bit differently about life than most people's moral intuitions when we talk about how many people were killed by coronavirus. And I think economists are more inclined to think in terms of, say, quality, right? Quality adjusted life years. They would say, well, the death of a hundred year old is sort of less tragic than the death of a six year old. And there's something about that way of thinking that offends some aspect of our morality and our intuition. I think not only does the law think of life as an either or thing, but so too does policy. And even though it leads to some perversities or, or difficulties, it's something that we're definitely wedded to, right? Yeah. I mean, economists often try to derive evaluation of life by looking at a variety of different contexts. How much are people willing to pay for life insurance? What sort of risky jobs are they willing to accept? When will they accept the vaccine and when not? They look at a variety of contexts in which people make decisions about risk. And often they are disturbed by the fact that they don't quite line up. Now, that lack of lineup is actually what you would pretty much expect if our morality has the shape that the law has, or if the law is in fact simply more image of our morality. 
because only if our individual morality were of this maximizing type, would we observe consistency between these different measures of value of life? I mean, in a sense, in even the simple example I gave you of duress, we're basically attaching inconsistent values to life as expressed by the fact that there is this intransitivity. My guess is that any recommendation that an economist makes on the basis of some particular statistical model he has, he can be made uneasy about by a competing statistic his temptation might then be to say, well, people are just being irrational and we need to seek to get them to commit to one of these valuations. To my mind, that's kind of equivalent to saying, well, we just need to get rid of the law of duress and the law of necessity and the law of self defense all of which exhibit these intransitivities. If it's acceptable in the law, it's hard to see why it wouldn't be acceptable in the individual morality of people. Of course, it makes policymaking a bit of a mystery. So that's one of those things we haven't figured out yet. I mean, to some extent at the aggregate level, one has to probably be more of a consequentialist, still not a pure consequentialist. But when government does things that seem inconsistent, well, to some extent, they're just mirroring a morality, which if it were to be consequentialist, would look extremely odd. Mm -hmm. Well, Leo, I think we could chat all day. <laughs> I think this is probably for people out there who never went to law school. They probably are getting a glimpse of how law school can be such a wonderful experience and enjoyable experience. And taking an entire semester long class with you would be one of the highlights of their law school experience. So this book right here, Why the Law is So Perverse, it's really a fantastic read. And of course, Bad Acts and Guilty Minds, Ill-Gotten Gains, all of these books are incredibly provocative. They'll keep you thinking for days, months, and in my case, years after reading them. Hope we can continue the conversation some other time. Thanks, Leo. Thank you so much, Gregory. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.